My guest today works at the intersection of social impact and finance, which is the sweet spot of this show. But all too often, I think we get caught up in the financial wizardry and the lure of bigger returns. My guest today is Elise Sainty. She's Director of Impact Investing at Social Ventures Australia, where she designs and manages social impact bonds. And her take on this was really refreshing. From her perspective, it's not really about investors. Instead, it's seeing capital as an enabler. It's the means to an end. And really, when you look at the central goal, it's not about making money. It's about making money make a difference. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about sustainable business, the new economy, and how your investment decision, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. Elise leads your pioneering team at SVA that have been behind pretty much all of Australia's pioneering forays into social impact bonds. And in this conversation, she does a great job breaking down this complex issue to make it easy to understand. She also explains why social impact bonds aren't really bonds at all. She delves into her transition from banking and finance to working in the social sector. And she talks about the genesis of SVA when the team saw an opportunity in the collapse of the ABC Learning childcare business to refashion its assets into a social enterprise that today is doing well in the form of Good Start Early Learning. This is a great episode for anyone confused about social impact bonds and their unique way of bringing together government funding, investors and service providers. But for those in the sector, Elise has some really valuable philosophies about the mission and the potential for social finance going forward. All right, I'm keen to dive in. All the links and show notes can be found at johntreadgold.com. And if you feel the urge, please do leave a comment or a review on iTunes. All right, nothing left to do but dive in to my chat with Elise Sainty. Here we go. Elise, great to have you here today. And to get us started, can you tell us a little about Social Ventures Australia? It's a unique organization here with a really interesting heritage as a pioneer in uh, in social finance and consulting. Thanks, John. Uh, yeah, happy to talk about Social Ventures. I, I think it is, as you say, quite a unique little organisation. We're a non-profit uh, and we turned 17 years old this year, so we're almost a grown-up. And as with any organisation that's been on that growing up journey, we've had a number of iterations over the years. Our vision is very much for an Australia where all people and communities thrive. And our role within that is largely as an enabler and an advocate. So we work in a number of ways. Our heritage and and probably still really our heartland is in venture philanthropy. And we work with and support some extraordinary organisations. And we've also uh, played a role in incubating some initiatives ourselves. So early on in the SVA journey, we saw that there was a need for sort of consulting support within the social sector. So we built a a consulting team. That team works exclusively on projects that aim to strengthen the social sector, be that with nonprofits or funders or increasingly with, with governments. And then most recently, we entered the impact investing space. So we saw that getting access to capital could be a challenge for social purpose organisations. It could really constrain their aspirations, if you like. 
Now, our first foray into social finance was really the creation of the Good Start Early Learning organisation, where SVA led the structuring and the financing of the creation of that non-profit organisation, sort of bringing it out of the ashes of the ABC learning collapse. So from that, I guess that pivotal moment in SVA's history, uh, we then sort of moved more deliberately into the impact investing space. And today, our team works across you know, a number of areas. We, we finance affordable and specialist housing. Uh, we invest in social enterprises. And we develop social impact bonds, which is the, the bit of the puzzle that, that I work on. And across those areas, we've now deployed capital for you know, over 200 impact investors into, into a range of different projects. And that good start moment, you know, that was a real pivotal moment, I think, for finance and, and for social finance in Australia. SVA were real pioneers there, and I think it really opened up the eyes of everybody in Australia to, to the potential here. What brought you to the sector? Was there a shift there where you went from uh, mainstream finance, shifted across? I was still on the periphery at that point. I'm actually a refugee from the financial services sector. So I had a couple of decades in wealth management and banking. I was getting to the point where working hard just to make a bank's share price go up just wasn't really cutting it for me. So being aware of it and wanting to make the transition was part of it, but actually executing that transition is, is much more complicated. And you know, I've got an actuarial background, so it wasn't really obvious how I could be useful in the sector. So in the end, I just went cold turkey. I quit my job and, uh, and gave myself the room to try to figure out how I could be, be part of this world. The serendipity for me is that I, I had a good friend who was working at SVA, so I was aware of the organisation and I had been hearing things like the Good Start um, stories. And I happened to then sort of cross path with SVA at the time when the, the New South Wales Social Impact Bond pilot was, was announced, the very first step into this, this arena. And I uh, happened to get involved and the rest, as they say, is history. Were there any particular sort of key, you know, really steep learning curves for you in that transition? You know, you're obviously comfortable with the finance structures, but were there any key, you know, elements of the social section of that that, that really hit you? Enormous learning curve, which was so exciting, really, because it's just understanding the landscape and the players and the dynamics of how the sector works. It's extremely interesting. So, yeah, I came from a very different world. I was well-versed in how wealth management and banking worked. So I think it was actually one of those fantastic moments in my life where I got to come in and be a complete novice and not learn it, not know anything. So, uh, yes, I, I could apply some financial skills, but really they're almost secondary to a deep understanding of how the sector works and yeah, the needs of the people that we're, we're trying to help and the problems that we're trying to solve. And without sort of a real focus on that, you can't be useful, you know, applying those financial skills. So there's a clear divide there in the skill set. And I think with your speciality that you mentioned, social impact bonds, um, I'd be interested to dig into how they differ to regular financial bonds. I think, you know, I find when I talk about financial structures, bonds is something that's hard enough to explain to people. And then when you add a social element, it's a little bit harder. So yeah, how do you, uh, how do you try and explain that? Yeah, probably by, well, saying that bond word is probably not terribly helpful in understanding social impact bonds. Right. I think 
that part of the name really creates a lot of confusion. I think if uh, we could go back in history and maybe choose something else, that would probably would have been a useful thing. What do you think you would have called it? Any ideas? The New South Wales government has moved to just using social impact investment, which could work better. But look, I don't think that's a very perfect phrase for it because it is such a unique beast. And it's unique because it's it's really bundling together a number of different aspects of, of you know, what are, I guess, standard financial services products. So it really, SIBs exist because governments are interested in exploring outcomes-based commissioning. And so it really starts with them thinking about how they can get better bang for taxpayer buck and better outcomes for the people that are being supported. And from that comes this very basic shift from governments paying for services upfront on a sort of you know, fee for activity basis to making deferred payments that are contingent upon measured results. Now the challenge there is that most non-profit organisations can't afford to wait around for a few years to find out whether they're going to get paid for their work and that's where the investor capital comes into play so that they can fund that, that service provision uh, in the years before they start to get the outcome payments. A fundamental component of a SIB is that the amount of capital that investors are repaid will depend upon the program's performance. And depending on the structure of the particular SIB, that could be that could be zero. So there's a fundamental difference to a regular bond, uh, which is that there is not a reasonable expectation, but a possibility that's built into the structure, which is that you might be entitled to you know, only a proportion of your capital back. As I said, SIBs are really are bundling together a few different services. So partly they're almost bridging finance. So giving organisations the funds to, to sort of pay for services until the government payment comes. But they're also in a way like an insurance product because the service provider can insure against their program not working so that they've got some certainty of their, of their cash flow. That leads to a very different set of considerations for investors than you would have for you know, looking at a normal corporate bond or a different type of bond, because the risks that need to be assessed are really unusual. So it's things like, you know, obviously does the program logic make sense? Can that service provider deliver the program well? But also things like, is the comparative benchmark against which it's going to be measured fair and under all circumstances, you know, how are risks shared between the government and ourselves? And even things like, are there going to be enough people enrolled in the program so that we can, even if the programs are doing a good job, that it can deliver the outcomes that are being sought? It's a sort of a, a very multifaceted uh, set of risks that investors need to be working through in deciding whether to invest. I think that's the key point, multifaceted and, and, and that risk factor and spreading that out. There seem to be a lot of groups there. You've got the investors, you've got the government, you've got the service providers that are actually going to deliver. Um, and then you've got SCBA, I guess, as an intermediary there. And I sort of started thinking about, you know, the motivations of them all. And, and while they're kind of similar, I guess they're distinct with each party. You know, the investors want to return, but they also want that measurable social impact. The government wants to deliver the services and have an outcome, but they want to do it at the lowest price possible. And I guess that's then bringing in the private sector because they tend to be more efficient and that's sort of a competitive role in there. And then service providers themselves, they've got a job to do and they're paid for that. Is that sort of a good kind of a right way to sum it up? Yeah, I think that's a good summation of the various parties. I think this is a new way of governments procuring services. So 
they do this all the time, obviously, in the social space. A lot of funding that goes into to programs to support people is already directed into the, the, the non-government um, sector. I think that in looking at outcomes-based contracting, it, it's almost an opportunity for all parties to be thinking afresh about what governments are trying to achieve in procuring services. So it really forces a very sharp focus on outcomes, on what you're trying to achieve. And that might sound simple, but it often is a very complex question. That means you need to really dig into what the problem is that you're trying to solve and, and what does success actually mean. It also offers opportunities for a different relationship between governments and service providers in particular. So it's best an outcomes-based contract will be longer term, there'll be less micromanaging, and it'll give service providers more flexibility to, to continue to innovate and improve their service delivery so that they can respond to you know, the needs of the people that they're working with. As you say, there are, there are lots of parties there because the investor bit comes in because the service providers, as I said, usually don't have the, the capacity or the risk appetite to be able to find out whether they're going to get paid. So then we do need to be designing a, a funding component of the transaction that will be appealing to investors when we go out to market. And that's very much our role is trying to get it to hang together for all parties and make sure that when we do, when we do go out to do the capital raising, um, we can actually find people who are interested in supporting the project. Yeah, it's great. Really innovative sort of business model management. When I hear that, the, the rubber must really hit the road at that outcomes point because that is the factor that's dependent on whether the bond gets paid out to the investors and, and will depend on their return. But I guess it's more than a financial metric there. It's quite a sort of a subjective social outcome. And, and, and I guess that's your role. And, you know, contracts would be very tight. Is that quite a difficult point? Like, is there risk there in terms of, you know, arguments later that, you know, we did achieve it and then trying to find that measurement point? And I guess that's what it comes down to, that this sticky issue of, of impact measurement is more important than ever. Yeah, it really is. And it's, I mean, SIBs are really at that the pointy end of impact measurement. I mean, I think there's a general trend across the whole sector towards people wanting to really understand what impact programs have. And there's lots of different frameworks that, that people put in place for measurement and evaluation. The difference with the SIB is that it's really woven into the fabric of the contract and there's money at stake. The outcomes that are being measured have to be very, very clear cut. They have to be robust and reliable. The data needs to be very robust. So generally it's drawn from an existing government data set, be it data about hospitalizations or criminal offending or what have you. And then you you do need to be making sure that you're choosing measures which satisfy the, the, those twin objectives of usually demonstrating to a government that they're getting value for money. And that's often a linkage to potential savings for, for the government, for taxpayers, but also that that truly does deliver a social impact. So it's going to be well correlated with what's going to be making a difference in the lives of the individuals. So you do need to get that right. And then the other complex bit is you need, um, you know, what we talk about as a counterfactual. So you need to have enough baseline data that you have a pretty clear view of what would happen in the parallel universe. So in the absence of the program that you're about to deliver, what would happen to the people that are going to be served without them? And that's your, your benchmark that you're being measured against. So that's where they're a little bit, SIBs are quite different in that there's that comparative measure. So success is relative to what would have happened 
in the absence of the program. And I guess that would would then vary for each um, each bond that's set up for each sort of larger project. Um, in the experience, you know, you've been through a few of these now. Are there any factors that you found particularly difficult to quantify to measure that, that got really sticky? Yes, measurement is always complex. Look, some of them are, are more straightforward in terms of having readily accessible data sets. So an example there might be the new pin bond, which was the first one we did. And the objective of that program is to restore children from out of home care to be back with their families, safely back with their families. The metric sort of seems obvious on one level, which is, was the child restored back to their family? Are they still in out of home care or are they at home? That is the sort of the metric that was chosen, but we did a lot of thinking about, we do need to be satisfied that that's actually the right outcome for the child and that it's correlated with future improvements or better outcomes for that child later on. It's not just about saving the government out of home care costs, it's about what's best for that family. I think sometimes it's a, it's a matter of just testing that there's no perverse incentive. So another example would be if a measure is around you know, hospital bed days, you're trying to sort of keep people well in the community rather than being in a hospital. But you want to make sure you've got safeguards so that if someone needs to go to hospital, there's not a barrier to them going because they need to. So there's those sorts of considerations around you know, perverse incentives. And I think the space where it's been the hardest is when you are moving into the truly preventative space. So this might be, for example, working with vulnerable children who, you know, as a group, are much more likely to you know, end up with poorer outcomes later in life. They might be more likely to, to offend or um, you know, have health problems or, or have difficulty getting work. And you're trying to do preventative work with them when they're children. Finding the right outcome measures for that sort of intervention is more complex because you don't have that suite of metrics which are more directly linked to government savings. So you can't be measuring you know, hospital bed days or offending because they're still you know, eight years old. Those are the areas where you know, there's still a lot of, a lot of you know, thinking about the best way to, to choose a measure or measures. Mm, it's, it's very interesting because success there is, is that something doesn't happen rather than measuring you know, the amount of times it does happen. And it sort of makes me think of the, the challenges that carbon trading went through in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and that it's measuring that something didn't happen, that pollution didn't happen. Very interesting. You guys are really at the pointy end of that. And um, yeah, great to see that there's so much innovation there and that, that really deep thought is happening and that you've got a big stick, I guess, of, um, of commercial investors, you know, making sure. So sort of, I guess I come back to that motivation factor that there's lots of um, rope pulling. And I think that that tension makes it a really tight structure. The thinking can be hard work, but I think for governments, for service providers, you know, for investors as well, the effort that's put into doing that thinking, which often involves access to a lot of data. So trying to sort of look at the trends and you know, understand what, kind of what the predictive modeling demonstrates for a particular problem can be illuminating in ways that don't relate just to the particular project. So I think there's, there's knowledge that's gained and reflection that's done that can be useful beyond the scope of, of a particular social impact bond. Mm, and then going a little bit wider, the Australian impact investing market is currently really dominated by bonds, mainly green bonds. What do you think this says about the Australian market and, and some of its unique nature? I do think that possibly that's a global phenomenon, not necessarily a uniquely Australian phenomenon. And if you reflect back on what makes an impact investment work, 
at the very basic level, the investee needs to have a revenue stream that they can use to pay back capital with an appropriate return. And clearly there's a lot of commercially viable projects and initiatives in the, the green space uh, as the world goes through what will hopefully be you know, an extraordinary transformation over the, the next few decades. So it, it probably isn't surprising that we're seeing the weight of, of impacts investing dollars in that sector. There are just more investable deals. In the social space, rather than the environmental space, I think there's a lot of different, there's a different scale, a lot of different challenges. And right now it's fair to say, and this is not just an Australian phenomenon, it's around the world, uh, it's fair to say that the supply of capital, the investment pool is larger than the size of the investable deals. So we don't lie awake at night wondering where we're gonna get our next bit of capital. It's much more about how do we construct transactions or find opportunities to deploy it. And you know, the, the investment money is very much an enabler of social change. The largest transactions we're seeing in the Australian context are very much wherever there's bricks and mortar involved. So if you've got property infrastructure for things like disability housing, then there's, there's greater demand for investor capital to just make some of those projects happen. And there probably are some unique Australian drivers in that space and things like the NDIS, which is you know, stimulating for extra housing through you know, providing some extra funding in the space. If you look then at the social enterprise segment, we're also seeing Australian governments starting to look at how they can use their social procurement muscle to really nurture that segment. And we're quite excited about um, yeah, the potential that that, that has to, to foster that segment, create some organisations that can work at greater scale. And then we do need to make sure that there's access to, to investor capital to enable that, that transformation to take place. Then if I sort of circle back to social impact bonds, these are still niche transactions, both in Australia and around the world. I think we're still less than a couple of hundred global um, SIBs. I've lost count of the exact number, but that still isn't very many, and they are still typically reasonably small in scale. You know, and there are reasons why there's sort of probably those, those constraints on how large those individual transactions you know, can be. I think all countries are sort of very much on that learning curve. Yes, yeah, SIBs are quite niche, definitely, and I guess that comes back to that type contractual structure and in fact it's different every time um, and as you said you know we have the market I guess for green bonds is getting bigger and bigger and, and that's something that finance is a bit more comfortable with I mean we've seen Woolworths uh, the first I think global retailer to offer a, a 400 million dollar green bond how do you see those structures as comparable I mean I, I perhaps a spectrum where that Woolworths bond is draddling and a little bit closer to traditional finance when, when SIBs really are quite pioneering? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, they're, yeah, they're comparable in the sense that there's, yeah, there's certainly that twin objective of social and financial return, but you know, there's a lot you know, across that spectrum, which, which is different. So you know, I do think it's difficult to compare uh, you know, impact investing in the social and environmental spheres. They're both terribly important, but they do have different dynamics, risks and, and scale and the, and the like. And a lot of those big green bonds are much closer to you know, what you would think of and probably in many cases are traditional commercial deals, which you know, some of the investors in them might not even think of themselves as impact investors. They're just seeing good returns and good money to be made. We're probably positioned very other end of the, the spectrum. So SVA is at that pointy end of the social impact spectrum. We see ourselves as an organisation as, as very much playing a catalytic role 
we're always looking to be sort of positioned so that we can be doing the things that other organisations might find challenging. So we want to step into the gaps. And we also want to be looking at how we can provoke change at a whole of system level rather than just you know, doing deals. We know we'd be quite delighted if there was no need for us you know, within a few years in, in this space, if impact investing became mainstreamed and, and access to capital was no longer a barrier for, you know, for social purpose organisations. Those aspirations to sort of play in the gaps and, and drive system change don't necessarily align with big investment deals. So I don't think you know, we'll ever be doing the, the $400 million type bonds or, or possibly, in, you know, again, in that sort of housing space where there is certainly more demand for big licks of money. We'd be delighted to be adding a couple of zeros to our, the end of our transaction sizes. You know, you guys really do have a, a unique role at that pointy end of social finance. What are some of the most misunderstood things about social impact finance? Perhaps this might be slightly controversial, but probably for me, it's that it's not really about investors. And that might not be what investors want to hear, but we very much see the investor capital as, you know, as an enabler. So it's a, it's a critical piece of the puzzle, but really it's the means to the end. And the bigger picture is about, particularly in the social impact bond space, it is about building evidence-based policies. It's about funding what works. And it's about evolving government commissioning practices so that, you know, as I've touched on before, there's, there's maybe a different way of working with social sector organisations that really is focused on, on the outcomes and the needs of the people that are being supported. There's probably a lot of interest and appetite in the, you know, the financial world and investment market generally for these instruments. And as I said before, our real focus is very much on figuring out where that capital can enable greater change. If we've got listeners out there that are working in mainstream finance that might want to breach that divide, might want to step onto the other side and you know, make investments that are catalytic rather than simply adding more zeros to, to people who have got enough already, you know, what advice would you give to people like that? There's a range of different ways people can go about that. I mean, if it's an appetite to sort of change the work they're doing, the approach I took was to jump out of the nest and then figure out how to fly. So I'm not sure I'd, I'd recommend that as a course of action to everyone. But I think it, it is certainly worth exploring what that might look like for you as an individual. And that could be anything from staying where you are and just bringing a really explicit you know, social and environmental lens to the work that you're doing now. Or it could be jumping across into you know, a role within a nonprofit or even in the impact investing landscape, although that's a pretty micro <laughs> industry at the moment, or it might be doing coalface work in a in part of the, the social sector that you're really passionate about. And you know, exploring those options might lead people in surprising directions. Another way they can do that is as you as you say, through their investment dollars. And you know, there continue to be you know, more and more avenues, I think, for people to be looking at how they can invest their capital in a way that brings good to the world. As I said before, the constraints we have is that we would love to have more opportunities for that to happen, but in a social space in particular, there's a sort of, there'll be a, a rhythm and a, and a slow build as to you know, how many um, you know, transaction opportunities there are for people to put their money into. Well, that's right. And, and I think uh, a lot of people listen to these, you know, these sorts of explanations and they think, oh, wow, that's great. How can I get involved in these, these sort of strategies? But a lot of them 
you know, really only open to institutional investors, professional investors with, with lots of money to deploy. We've spoken to a few people that have said that they're working really hard to get a retail option that regular everyday investors can, you know, perhaps in a, a managed fund structure could put some money into without sort of giving financial advice. What avenue do you think would be the best way for some fund manager to build a structure that could be retail accessible? It's a path that we have considered going down and we would love to do that. We haven't gone down a retail option yet because we didn't want to tease people and sort of open up a fund and then not have anywhere to deploy that money. So, we, we, you know, you need to have meaningful places you can deploy it. You know, I think it's really challenging. I think that there is that sort of constraint around supply of investable products. If you're operating at that truly deliberate social impact end, Clearly, in the space where it's more around, you know, negative screens or sort of looking for opportunities that just, you know, don't do bad things in the world. So, you're looking for the avoiding collateral damage rather than creating collateral benefits, then there's, you know, there's a broad range of opportunities. In terms of creating funds or products that attract retail consumers, then I think, again, coming back to the sort of the housing space, I think there's potential there for pools of capital to be set up that can play into that space. So whether it's disability housing or, or affordable housing, then there's just clearly emerging demand there. If it was broader than that and there was you know, social impact bonds and social enterprise financing, then the scope for large retail funds is, I think, somewhat challenging. Lots to think about there and, and scope for optimism in there that, you know, lots of different structures and, and that innovation in, in financial strategy is as important as any other type of, you know, sort of investment in terms of technology and that sort of thing. So great to hear all about that. And, and I really think that's a useful kind of social impact bond 101. And hopefully we've um, made that a bit more accessible to people and then for people that do sort of understand it to take that a bit further. I will let you go. But first, I'd love to know what you're reading. Can you give us a, a book recommendation? I have to confess, I'm, I'm not reading anything right now because I, uh, well, I've been a bit busy. But the last book I read was Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, received that as a Christmas present, which was great. And that's one I'd certainly recommend to anyone who hasn't read it. It's been around for a few years. So very thought-provoking and informative as a member of the human species. And for me, probably the theme from that book that made me ponder the most was, was an idea in it that in many cases, progress might be great for the collective, for the species as a whole, but it might not necessarily work out so well for the individuals within the collective. And that really resonated for me that, you know, perhaps we need to be careful what we wish for. And, you know, if I come all the way back to some of my earlier comments about watching out for perverse incentives and unintended consequences in, in even in developing social impact bonds, there's, there's something in there, I think, for uh, where we head as a species as well. So that was, uh, that was my takeout from that one. Yeah, it's a great book. Thanks for that recommendation. I think it's really a study of ourselves and, and really takes that lens right back and, and has a look. And, and he's obviously written about the past and then the future. So there's a few of his books to get through. Great tip, that one. All right, well, look, let's leave it there. And thank you so much for that. There's a lot of lessons there. And I think that's really clear. And yeah, it'd be great to catch up in the future and, and see where you go and, and how it all shifts with these bonds that get better and better every time. Hopefully, uh, we'll be talking again in a few years about uh, the, the, the next evolution and the, uh, the continuing growth of this sector. So, that'd be very exciting. And if anybody wanted to find out more about uh, SIBS, is there a, a website address that would be the best for everyone to find it? 
Uh, yeah, the Social Ventures Australia website's probably a, a good place to start. We, uh, you know, we have information about the various projects that we've been involved with and some, some generic information and also linkages to some of the government websites which also have a lot of information on it as well. There's plenty out there to read if you want to Google social impact bonds. Oh, good stuff. And I'll put, put the links to that in the show notes on the website. All right. Thank you for that today, Elise.